LinkedIn News. The space between the conscious and the subconscious is liminal space. Liminal is the in-between. And so it's about taking what's in the subconscious and making it known. And then when it's known, we can change it and shift it if we want to. It's always we have the choice. It's up to us. And so it's really about ending that cognitive dissonance. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart. And this is Everyday Better, a self-improvement podcast where every week I sit down with some of the world's brightest minds and bravest hearts to learn how we can improve ourselves, our relationship to others, and the world around us. Welcome back to The Better Blueprint for Your 2024. January is a month when we think about who we want to become. We correct habits that aren't working. We create resolutions we want to live by and intentions for the year ahead. Why? Because we want to thrive. We want to absolutely love the lives that we're living. But without clarity on what to focus on, it's really easy to miss the mark. So this month, we're introducing a series. It's a roadmap for thriving in four essential areas. Physical health, emotional health, relational health, and work health. I want to emphasize work health is not just about your job, but your overall contribution and your sense of purpose. I promise, and research shows that if you give each or even one of these areas a little more clear and pointed intention and attention, it'll put you on an upward spiral that'll impact all of the other areas of your life. Now, if you go look up the elements of well-being, you're going to find so many models. Our focus is giving an umbrella to some of the most widely recognized pillars that are backed by research. We'll explore them in some specificity this month, but you'll continue to hear more on these pillars and the ways in which you can thrive throughout the year. Every week, we'll be covering something in each of these areas, all focused on helping you understand more, improve through knowledge, and take action every single day. Today is physical health. If you are like many adults, our topic today might be a little bit thorny for you. If you're of legal drinking age, this topic will be important. If you are doing or have ever done dry January, this topic is for you. Okay, so today I'm bringing someone on the show whose book, if I'm being honest, I resisted for quite some time. In my experience, when I'm resisting something, there's a gift for me in moving toward it. There's a learning, a shift, or a change that opens up. But that doesn't make it super easy to lean in. In this case, I finally did, and I am happy to report I made it out alive and hopefully with a gift for you. I'm going to give you a little bit more of an intro to our guest and her work than I normally would. So here's the deal. Annie Grace was a fully functioning and high-performing marketing executive, a speaker, a wife, and a mom. Except there was one giant problem. She was hiding that she was also an alcoholic. Her drink of choice was wine. So why focus on alcohol on this show right now? Well, many of us find ourselves in environments where alcohol is not just a social lubricant, but a normative part of professional networking and bonding. This conversation with Annie isn't about judgment or advocating for your abstinence. Annie isn't doing that either. Instead, it's about fostering a deeper understanding of our relationship with alcohol. 
It's about making informed, conscious choices that align with our personal and professional well-being goals. Her book is called This Naked Mind. And it's not just about the painful and isolating experience of becoming an alcoholic and the beautiful process, while also painful, I'm sure, of recovering from alcoholism, though you will absolutely find that in her book. It's actually at a higher level about how our society, conditioning, surroundings, and beliefs can cause us to do things we don't want to, things we know will not help us thrive. It's about how we can get trapped in patterns, habits, or even addictions that we want so badly to release and break free from, but simply can't do it. Now, Annie's challenge and focus of her work was alcohol, but that doesn't have to be the big area where you want change for you to get serious value out of our conversation. That's because the method she used is different than some of the more traditional ones we may know and respect. The liminal process or liminal thinking, which is a way to unpack and transform unhelpful patterns, beliefs, and habits, even addictions, beneath the surface in our subconscious mind. That, as it seems to be turning out, is the key. She hasn't had a drink in almost a decade, though she's not encouraging us to be sober. She's really asking us to change our relationship to our belief that willpower is what makes us strong or weak when it comes to changing our habits and to taking a liminal approach. So she's going to talk about her experience healing from alcoholism through liminal thinking, how she's helped thousands of people do it, and how you can use it in any area of your life where you want lasting transformation. I'll see you on the other side, and here's Annie. The main purpose, I would say, is to help people feel less regret when they do make a change, without any blame or shame, with fully knowing that the best way to change is through radical acceptance and curiosity, and not through the rules and the blame and the shame and the torture that we put ourselves through when we're trying to change a behavior in the typical fashion. Radical acceptance and curiosity. So it didn't start that way for you. So tell me a little bit about your story and how you got here. So I didn't drink a lot in college and didn't even drink a lot in my early adulthood. I was living in an apartment in Brooklyn. I had a Manhattan job. I was invited out to my first happy hour. <laughs> got the bill. It was $25 for a cocktail. This was in 2005. And I was like, okay, I can't afford that. Still that way today, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so expensive. And I was like, that's ridiculous. So I just kind of stopped going out to happy hour. And then I was actually taken aside from a boss. And he's like, hey, why don't you come out to happy hours? Like, oh, I don't really drink. And he's like, oh, Annie, let me just take you under my wing here. That is not what this is about. It's about the networking opportunities, getting your ideas heard because there's no time when we're all so busy in the office, getting your face seen by the higher ups who are visiting from out of town. And if you're serious about your career, like it's important. So I was really serious about my career. And so I actually had a method. I would have a glass of wine and then a pint of water and alternate them so that I would never get too tipsy. And I remember times feeling like, oh, I'm feeling tipsy. I'm feeling out of control. I would actually go into the bathroom and throw up the last glass of wine just so I could keep drinking and stay out and stay in control. And so it was this very methodical, intentional thing at first that 
morphed because all of the things that I was doing to cope with stress were, you know, I'd run, I'd I'd go to exercise classes, I'd read books, I'd do all these things. And all of a sudden I'd go home and what was drinking just at work became drinking at home too. And I'd be like, oh, it's easier to just stop at the bodega and grab a bottle of wine and bring it home with me. My husband was working investment bank, so he was working till 10, 11 every single night. So I was alone a lot. So I ended up drinking alone at home a lot. Fast forward a decade, I had two young boys at the time, two and four years old. I was working between the U.S. and the U.K. because I was now promoted multiple times. I was internationally in charge of marketing for my company, and I was drinking at least two bottles of wine a night. I would buy boxes so that I wouldn't know when I was finished with that first bottle or that second bottle. And the physical, if nothing else, consequences just started mounting in my life. And so I did what most people do, which is like, okay, no problem. I'll just drink less. And interestingly, that decision to just, okay, I'll just drink less kicked off something I did not understand at the time, an internal argument, because all of a sudden I was trying to use my willpower to make myself not do something that I not only wanted to do, but I had come to believe was vital for my life. I truly believed it was important to relaxing in the bedroom. I believed it was important to networking. I believed it was important to being present with my kids. I thought it was the only way to have fun. I thought it was the only way to take the stress out of the week. I literally saw alcohol as a friend, an ally in managing my entire life and certainly not as the problem. So when I made that decision, okay, I'll just drink less or not drink till the weekend. It was almost then that my drinking really started to increase. And then I lived in that place of a lot of drama for many years. Well, and what you're referencing is what you talk about in the book, cognitive dissonance, that one part of us wants to do one thing, the other part doesn't agree. So we're like at war within ourselves, which I think it's important actually now to say, I imagine for people listening, you're thinking, well, that's not me. I'm not drinking all the time. I don't drink two bottles of wine a night. And I want to say, keep listening, because there's a lot of really good information to understand that we separate ourselves from people and it helps us feel like we are living in a different world and that it could never happen to us. And those are the very people it happens to. So I do want to call that out. But the cognitive dissonance piece I experience when I go do something and have more than two glasses of wine, I'm going... I regret that in the morning. And beyond just the hangover, which hilariously, a lot of what you talk about in the book is like, duh, you know, like the fact that you're having a hangover is literally your body saying, this is not something you should put inside of me. <laughs> and we have made it socially acceptable, if not uh, humorous, to have a hangover and then to nurse that hangover for many people with more alcohol and making it funny. What was interesting to me is thinking about the humor we put around alcohol. And that lightens the mood and lightens everyone's thoughts about it. But the cognitive dissonance piece, I imagine many people have experienced that feeling of, I went out and had a crazy night and I can't remember it, that blackout event. But even just I had a couple too many drinks, what did I exactly say to that person? And then you start down the path of, why do I do this? Like feeling the shame, feeling the guilt, and then knowing and looking ahead at your social calendar or your life and going, and how am I going to stop given the way that I live? Yeah. And I just echo what you said at the very beginning. In addition is it didn't start that way for me either. I remember having a friend who actually went to AA and she came over to my house and I went to get the bottle of wine that we usually would open together. And she was like, oh, I'm not drinking anymore. And I was like, why not? And she goes, well, I found out I'm an alcoholic. And I was like, oh, what about me? Like, I keep up with you drink for drink. And at the time, yeah, we were maybe splitting a bottle of wine. 
And she was like, no, no, I was born this way. And so it really reinforced that idea for me that there was kind of us and them. And she's like, no, you're normal. You drink differently than I do. And that was true for a very long time. I don't even know that there was a line at which things changed in terms of me being like, oh yeah, now this is a problem because it was such a slow sort of insidious progression. And it's just physiologically how the body works. Like the body needs more alcohol to get the same feeling. So if you're drinking one glass to relax and you do that regularly for a few years, even on just the weekends, eventually you need two glasses to relax. Eventually, you know, you need more. And so I didn't understand those dynamics, but I think that us and them mentality that you're speaking about, it definitely kept me for years from actually asking the question, which I think even the question, is this a problem, is perhaps the wrong question. And a far more productive question is, would I be happier drinking a bit less? That's a good question. I like the happier because it offers like a little bit of a scale versus like happy or unhappy, the kind of black and white thinking, and a little bit less. And what I loved about your book was that it's not necessarily you trying to convince people that they all need to be sober and never drink again. It's you helping people see their relationship to it currently and then decide consciously with information how they want to relate to it and how much they want to consume. Yeah, I think that's so, so important. One of the things that, in my opinion, traditional recovery has, I think, is harmful is this all or nothing mentality. Because if you look across behavior in general and just life in general and humans in general, there's very few things that we treat as if 100% is success, but 99% is failure. But then Dak Shepard came out with a day seven episode about how he basically sacrificed 16 years of sobriety because of a few incidents and the idea that you throw away 16 years because of this all or nothing mentality. I mean, he says in the episode, it kept him from even coming clean sooner because of that massive burden of disappointment in self, disappointment in my community, all of these things. And if you just look at it critically for a second, like I literally cannot think of another area in life where we measure things where 100% equals success. In all of my work, I talk about instead of relapse, we don't use that word. I use the word data point, which is simply, this is data. Like you you had a drink or you drink more than you want to and you only wanted to have one, you had three or four. It's data. How did you feel? Because when you're in that, I did something wrong, I'm judging myself, you open no possibility for curiosity. And I really think curiosity is so important because if we start with the premise that you're not broken and that you're doing the best you can with the tools you have, that there's absolutely nothing wrong with you, and that there's no ultimatum to stop drinking. There's no all or nothing in the future because that, by the way, you won't even know you're successful till you're dead if you say, I'm never going to drink again. So I literally have never said that. I will never say that because it's not something that is mentally healthy. You're no longer can claim your time. I think it's a real destructive way to look at things. So if you take me a step back and you think about the people that you've worked with or heard from, I think you mentioned it was like 7,000 plus people who wanted to, I forget what they volunteered to do, but it was something with the book as you were writing it, which showed you the amount of interest that you had. What kinds of questions or what kinds of feelings are they having that help alert them to the idea that maybe their relationship to alcohol is out of balance? When we approach this entire conversation with the existing kind of zeitgeist, the the existing cultural common knowledge that in order to change, you need to have a problem. 
then the questions we're asking are, do I have a problem? Am I an alcoholic? How much is too much? How will I know? And all of these questions, they all have incredibly painful answers with our common knowledge because our common knowledge is if it's a problem, you have to get sober. That often means going to meetings. That can mean never drinking again. That means changing your social life, feeling deprived, feeling like you're missing out. And it, it at its crux means denying yourself something that you believe is useful and valuable in your life. We don't drink because we just think this is terrible for me, but I'm going to do it anyway. No, we drink because we think, hey, this is providing a benefit. If we didn't believe it provided a benefit, we wouldn't be doing it, right? So we believe, I believed it provided social benefits and emotional benefits and all of these benefits. And so when we're approaching this whole conversation with the overall perspective of, I don't need to change unless this is a problem, then we come to the entire conversation with resistance. Like there's so much resistance because we're not looking at every single instance and saying, hey, right now in this moment, if I made it mean nothing, I can drink this, I cannot drink this. It does not mean I have a problem if I drink it. It doesn't mean I'm perfectly okay if I don't. It has no meaning. Do I want to drink it? We might actually make better in the moment decisions, but we've added all of this story and all of this heaviness. And so I actually, for myself, I say I drink as much as I want whenever I want. I just haven't wanted a drink in, it will be nine years in December. And that's not because I'm trying to not do it. It's because every time, and it's much different now, eight years in than it was in the first year or two. I remember being on the beach in Hawaii. First time we were on a beach vacation, my husband orders a Mai Tai. And I'm like, okay, well, this is a situation where obviously you have to have a Mai Tai because it tastes better with the rum. And I'm like, does it? And so I'm like, super curious. And so I was like, all right, you order one with rum. I'm going to order a virgin one. We're going to do a taste test. So I had a sip of his. I had a sip of mine. I was like, not only is mine better, but if I drink yours, I'm going to be a little tired. I'm probably going to want another one, and then I'm probably going to end up getting drunk. So I was like, huh, I'm going to drink the virgin one. Great. And so we just discount that we have these brilliant brains. I believe that if we as human beings have all the information in front of us, without any of the story, without any of the guilt, without any of the shame, all the information to say, look, this glass of wine, it actually increases cortisol in the body. It does not relax you. It actually is going to make you feel more upset tomorrow morning. Do you really want it? In most cases, if we're not judging ourselves, if we're not trying to hide it from ourselves, if we're not trying to judge, does this mean I have a problem? In a lot of cases, especially when we're early on, when we're not drinking, I will admit that some people are chemically addicted. And according to the CDC, it's 10% of excessive drinkers, that something changes in your brain and you really can't be around alcohol. But that's not most of us. That's not mm. usually the case. But if we can just approach it with compassion and curiosity, we're doing the best we can with the tools we have. We've been using this tool called alcohol. Is it actually the right tool for this situation? We usually can be trusted with ourselves. And so that's the crux of my work and what people were feeding back to me is like, wow, I'm gonna be empowered with my own decision-making skills. I'm gonna trust myself in this situation. And then by the way, if I say, okay, yeah, I'm gonna trust myself to have a few Mai Tais and I wake up the next morning, I'm like, oh, that was a mistake. I'm not going to use shame. I'm not going to use guilt. I'm not going to blame myself. I'm going to be like, okay, that was data, right? Like, it was just data. Mm -hmm. And I like to use this example of, like, how does a computer learn how to play chess? It's just programmed with all the pieces on the board, all the things they can do, and then it makes a move, and it's a wrong move. And it makes another move, and it's a wrong move. It makes <laughs> a thousand moves, mm -hmm. and then finally it does something that progresses it. And it's like, oh, that was the right move. And so it says, I'll do more of that, and I'll do less of those. And the entirety of the learning experience is through experimentation. It is through trying something and seeing if it works for you or not. 
there's no guilt. There's no computer saying, oh my gosh, I can't believe I made the wrong move. That was so horrible. We're not piling all that story onto ourselves. And if you think about it just really critically, if you are drinking to escape and you're drinking to relax and you pile all of this story of shame and blame onto yourself, that causes pain. And as a drinker, you have literally trained yourself to drink to escape pain. So the predictable outcome of that is you will drink more, not less over time. And I think why people find my work both very transformational and useful, but also very hard to understand is because I'm trying to have a wildly different conversation yes. than behavior. I'm saying, forget your behavior. Let's talk about how you feel. And then from there, your behavior will actually take care of itself. It breaks people's brains. We're taking a quick break. We'll be right back with Annie Grace. But before we go to break, let's hear from some of our listeners on how they're planning to improve themselves in 2024. Hi, I'm Andrew, and I am from New York. And I think what I want to get better at this year is focusing on my physical wellness in terms of getting better with strength training and physical endurance. And I think I can do that by employing the use of a personal trainer and also going to the gym more. Even if I don't go the majority of the week or every day, if I just do it a little bit, I'll get a little bit better. Hi, I'm Alexis from Brooklyn, New York. And in 2024, I want to make more time for my creative pursuits. I spent a lot of time focusing on work, my relationship, but I haven't really had a lot of time for myself. Music is something that's really important to me, as well as just dance and art. So I'm hoping to carve out a schedule actually put that time on my calendar and stick to it and get something great out of it. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back on Everyday Better with Annie Grace. In your book, there are two stories I love. One is the descent story of the insect and the flower. But the other that I think is so relatable and will kind of start to help people 
think about their relationship to this thing, right, is the story of going out with coworkers and how when you stop drinking, and I love this, I drink as much as I want when I want, I just haven't wanted to. Like how light and simple is that versus I don't drink and then you get 18 million questions. But you talk about this experience of going out and you weren't drinking and other people were and you couldn't figure out why you didn't have a good time. And again, what I love about your book, as much as it breaks your brain, it's also if you allow it to break your brain so simple, which was like, you didn't have a good time because you didn't enjoy it. I was like, oh my God, I've been at countless events where people have been drinking. It's a normal part of our culture. And like you said at the beginning of the book, 87% of American adults say that they drink regularly, right? So it's very typical for us to do these things. And we make up that because we drink, we're having a good time. When I think about my own experiences, I'm like, when I'm around people I don't know, that don't know me, that I don't necessarily feel comfortable sharing all of who I am with yet, or even, you know, who you keep some sort of mask on for, I think, well, in order to get to where I need to get to with these people, I need to have a drink. Instead of, wait, this is just my body and my brain's natural way of responding to discomfort with people I don't know. That story just took me back to so many different times at different bars, restaurants, or parties where I went, God, do I not fit in because I'm not having a good time? Or am I getting a message that I should be listening to? Did you find that that was common with a lot of people? Yeah, very common. First of all, I just want to say that what you just did, like you and I just speak so much of the same language because what you just did, I call like definitions over labels. And so you said, I'm not going to label it. I'm going to define it. And it's just like speaking my love language. I, I love that. So important. Yes. Love it. Yeah. So that feeling of, okay, there's people here I don't know. My story specifically was I had gone out to lots of work dinners, no drinking, and I enjoyed myself and it had been great. And then the first time we went out after work, we were in London and we went to this really loud club and I still wasn't drinking, but in my mind, I was like, I'm going to be the one who doesn't care. I'm going to be the one who enjoys everything. And I get back from three hours at this club where I couldn't hear anybody. Everybody was sloppy. And I'm in my hotel room and I call my husband and I'm just like, I guess I really do miss drinking because this was so miserable. And he's like, I have never known you to enjoy clubs ever. And it was funny because I had turned off that part of myself with alcohol. Like when I didn't drink a lot in college, people would be like, let's go out to the club. I'd be like, that's not my scene. But I had turned that off. It's just who I am. Nothing right or wrong about it. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, I just actually don't like that. And exactly what you were saying, all you have to do is look at like a little kid's birthday party. When kids come to a birthday party, it takes them 15, 20 minutes, right? The, and all the parents have a shared activity that people are coming into and everybody feels shy. They're clinging to somebody's leg. It's just human nature to need a minute. We call it breaking the ice for a reason. It's just human nature to be like, okay, are these people good? Am I safe here? Is everybody cool? It's just how it is. And we make it wrong. Like we just try to turn off these very natural parts of ourselves that are saying, hey, you enjoy this, not this. Like, oh, that can't be okay. So I just have to drink and, and just kind of erase these little parts of myself that are authentic for me. Mm -hmm. And how natural. Yeah, it's, I love that idea of thinking of a kid's birthday party. We're using this thing to remove this natural part of ourselves because we don't know how to deal with maybe discomfort. Because what you're talking about, the idea of if you're drinking to escape or to relax, do you find that what you become as you start to change your relationship to alcohol is more empowered in how you handle stress, anxiety, and uncertainty? Oh, it's phenomenal in that way because a bunch of different things happen. Number one is you really, 
I feel like for me, stopping the numbing, and you know this about me, but I'll say it for everybody, I'm not an advocate of sobriety. Like, I don't think people need to even necessarily stop drinking. But I do think that when we self-medicate with alcohol, it's a little different than just socializing with alcohol. And the reason is because, A, there's a lot of better things that we can do to make ourselves feel better. Alcohol is just a Band-Aid. It's like putting a Band-Aid over a festering wound. It, it makes it worse, not better. But then also because we're not listening to the internal cues that we need to listen to to just learn how to become like happy, healthy human beings. And so when I stopped self-medicating specifically with alcohol, all of a sudden I had to go and learn social skills. And we all bandied that word around, but it's social skills. <laughs> As in, you need to learn them. And there's some really great skills, like asking questions and being genuinely curious about other people makes you super magnetic. And it's super interesting, right? It's such a band-aid of not learning the skill. I'm just going to pretend like I know it. But I'm not actually making genuine connections. But now when you go in and you're like, okay, I'm going to actually put myself aside for a minute and say, how can I learn something about another human being? How can I learn 10 new things about 10 different people tonight? How can I actually make this a skill? You walk out of that situation, you're like, wow, I am capable of this. But when we use alcohol to do it, we just deprive ourselves of, it's so beautiful to be able to be fully present for some of those experiences. It's so beautiful to be able to be fully present for connection. We rob ourselves because when you numb the bad, when you numb the pain, like you numb the joy. It's just how it is. Like you cannot numb selectively. And you rob yourself of the ability to actually learn how to socialize, learn how to connect with other people, learn how to face your own fear and discomfort, learn how to listen to your body for what you actually need. If you're really hot, you actually ask yourself, like, do I need a fan? Do I need a cold drink? What do I actually need? But when we feel discomfort, we don't actually look for a solution to it. We just say, okay, discomfort, drink, discomfort, drink. And we're constantly dealing with the symptom and we're never dealing with the cause. And so for me, when I stopped drinking, it was like the first step. It's been this just mind-blowing experience of the last eight years of learning about myself all over again and learning, oh, there's causes to all of these things. It's really empowering. As I'm listening to you talk about the upside, and I think that's always really important. I always ask people, why should we be doing that? Part of that is what you spend a lot of time on in the book, which is we weren't born wanting alcohol. So can you talk a little bit about these two big things, which are the societal pressure and the smaller community social pressure? It's such a good one because it is at its core, you know, learning how to navigate that low-level discomfort that comes from being different than everybody you're around in that sense. And it's very specifically with those intimate gatherings with the communities, and especially when you feel pressure from another person of like, why aren't you drinking? You used to drink. What's the deal? The understanding that the dynamic that's happening there is actually so much more about them than you. And I remember this so vividly with my own drinking. When somebody would show up not drinking, I was really triggered. I didn't have words for it at the time. And it's a very triggering thing if you have any questioning of your own drinking at all and somebody isn't drinking. It's like holding up this mirror and this neon sign. And it says, you're going to judge me. You're going to be too good for me. Our relationship is going to change. I'm going to lose you somehow. And or I'm going to have to face a truth about myself that I don't want to face. And so all of that is like flooding in to the energy and the space between you all at once. And so 
that question that you perceive as like, gosh, that was aggressive. I'm just not drinking. No big deal. When you can like peel back the layer and see, oh my gosh, this person is not even consciously, but subconsciously afraid of their own drinking, afraid of the dynamic between you changing, afraid of your judgment, afraid of their judgment of themselves. All of this stuff is happening. Then it can become something where when I realized that, I started actually trying to go out of my way to make sure people were wildly comfortable drinking around me. And so I would do that in different ways. I noticed that if I was ordering for the table and or if I was the first one to order and I'd order a nice tea, then everybody else would kind of look at each other and they'd be like, oh man, all right, I guess I'll have a Coke, you know? And I was like, I don't want people to, because we're such social creatures. We have mirror neurons in our brains that like make us do what the person across from us is doing. It's totally subconscious. And so what I would do is I would be like, okay, who, who's drinking red? Who's drinking right? Who wants a cocktail? And I kind of orchestrate all the ordering. And then when everybody had ordered, I'd tell the waitress, just bring me an iced tea. And then everybody was taken care of. And it was just this over trying to say, hey, you and I, this space between us, this is safe. This is good. There's no judgment here. This has nothing to do with you. But I was very, very comfortable. So I know not everybody comes out of the gate that comfortable. But because I'd done all the research that went into the book, so I'd really gone through this liminal process myself of what it is ending the cognitive dissonance in myself, that internal fighting, um, rewiring my subconscious belief systems with science, and then adopting this very intense experiment mentality of what is it going to be like? And when I'd gone through that process, then I could show up for other people in a way that helped them feel super safe. And then the beauty of that is that when somebody feels safe around you, they don't feel like they're going to be judged. They don't feel like they're going to be left behind. Then if and when they're curious about their drinking, guess who they ask? It's me. Because they've never felt judged by me. They've never felt looked down on. I guess I'm curious if you were to tell people, like, here's how you can start changing or shifting your thinking about your relationship to alcohol if you're curious about it, where would you tell them to start? So two key pillars, and it's curiosity and self-compassion. And they really they have to coexist with each other. It's really hard to be curious when you're judging yourself. So you almost have to put down judgment in order to be curious. And obviously putting down judgment awakens self-compassion. But very practically with that overarching theory, I would say when you decide to have a drink, notice when you feel better. For me, it was before I actually sipped the alcohol. I felt better in the decision, especially when I had entered that cognitive dissonance phase, that phase of like, oh, am I going to, am I not going to, how much is going to be enough? You know, all those questions that I was kind of fighting with myself about my own drinking. As soon as I decided, hey, you know, I'm going to drink, I started to feel better when I was pouring the wine. I started to feel better when I was ordering the drink. It was not the alcohol. And I was like, that's interesting. There's something else going on here. There's some other thing going on here. And then the other place to get really practically curious is when you have that drink, just get out a stopwatch or a timer. Say, I'm not going to have another drink for at least 30 minutes. How long do I actually feel good? How long does this one drink make me feel good for? And the reality of how our alcohol is a fascinating, just a little bit of science, but it's a fascinating substance in the sense that it is both a stimulant and a depressant. And so alcohol is a stimulant, when it's your blood alcohol content is rising or your BAC is rising, so you feel that kind of tipsy, the edges of the room feel a little bit less clear, you kind of feel relaxed, you feel all those feelings that get us hooked, that buzzed feeling. And your blood alcohol content rises for one drink, 18 to 25 minutes. And then it plateaus and your blood alcohol content starts to fall. And the feeling of a blood alcohol falling is a depressant feeling. 
and you start to feel uneasy. You start to feel tired. You start to feel grumpy. You feel uncomfortable in your own skin. You feel like something's just not quite right. And often, 18 to 20 minutes, we reach for the next drink to try to keep the blood alcohol going in that upward direction. It never does give us the same amount of time. The time diminishes every time. But what happens is that blood alcohol falling, it lasts for two to three hours for that 20 minutes. So you're trading 20 minutes of that nice feeling for two to three hours of the not so nice feeling. And if you've been drinking really regularly, a lot of people who do this in my communities and stuff, they'll post their results and they're like, I don't even feel good for more than five minutes. Or they'll feel good when they made the decision, but then the actual drink itself, it's like not this big euphoric thing they thought, but literally setting a timer. Like, okay, I had to drink, noticing how you feel, noticing how good you feel and for how long you feel it. And then not letting yourself just reach for the next one for at least 30 minutes. If you can do 45 or an hour, it's even better because you'll notice you'll feel a dip in your mood that's worse than before you took the first sip. Mm -hmm. The third step in the liminal process is this experiment mentality. Like when I started to put on a white lab coat in my own life, I was like, oh my gosh, this literally makes no sense. And then it's, you're not using willpower anymore. It's not this efforting to try not to do it. You're just like, yeah, that doesn't make sense anymore. Is it that liminal thinking is helping us use our willpower differently? Is it that liminal thinking is helping us change our subconscious and so we don't even have to use willpower? What does that look like? So the liminal process and liminal, as I'm describing, is just like the space between the conscious and the subconscious is liminal space. Liminal isn't the in-between. And so it's about taking what's in the subconscious and making it known. And then when it's known, we can change it and shift it if we want to. It's always we have the choice. It's up to us. And so it's really about ending that cognitive dissonance. In fact, in the beginning of the book, I say, stop trying to stop drinking. Just read the book. I don't want that internal fight anymore. And that ends that cognitive dissonance. So you can at least have the space to hear something new. And then the next step is rewiring those subconscious beliefs. And that literally looks like surfacing them. You know, I believe that alcohol relaxed me like I believed the sky was blue. I didn't think it was a belief. I just thought it was true, which is how you know it's subconscious. You just think it's true. And so to be like, okay, well, actually, the science is that alcohol creates a, a stress response of the body instantly. It releases cortisol. Your brain responds with the stress hormone. That's really interesting. And that's one of, you know, maybe a dozen different points that I would make about that alcohol relaxing you, which changes your thoughts, which changes how you feel. And then when you change how you feel, you change what you do. And so that's the second step. And then the third step is trying it on in your own life, adopting that experiment mentality and saying, how is it if I just time a drink? When do I actually feel better? You know, those examples that I gave earlier of just saying, okay, what might it be like? What if I did try 30 days? And the point of it is that without desire, there's no temptation. So why it's so hard to understand is because we don't feel like we have control over our desires and we don't feel like we have control over our emotions because they're rooted in our subconscious. But we all can think of somebody who we used to be in love with. The sun wouldn't rise without this person. If this person broke up with us, our lives were going to be over. It was absolutely miserable. And we couldn't even imagine life without this person. And now we can't even remember their birthday. Like, we don't even know where they live anymore, right? Like, we, we all have that experience of our desire changing so radically, but it happened through a process. And so it's kind of surfacing that process and saying, I know you cannot even begin to imagine, but through this process, 
you might not want to drink anymore. You might not desire it. And if you don't desire it, then, yeah, there's no willpower needed. Mm, got it. And I love that you lay out that process and the cognitive dissonance piece also. It feels um, counterintuitive, but that you'd say, don't worry about stopping, just read. Yeah, it's taking all the focus off the behavior because the yeah. entire liminal process is to change emotion. Because when emotion changes, behavior changes. And all the newest science, and this is all science that has come out since I wrote This Naked Mind, which is really cool, but it's come out from Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett and Dr. B.J. Fogg out of Stanford. And it says like definitively that they have now proven that it's not how long you do or sustain behavior change that makes it stick. We used to think it was 60 days or 90 days or 20 days. It's how you feel. So if you're constantly using willpower, which means you always want to drink, but you're not letting yourself, inevitably you'll drink again. And you can see this, like the statistics are literally abysmal. I had a guy who does efficacy for rehab centers. He told me, Annie, 94% of people to 96% of people are drinking by the time they hit the mailbox when they leave their 30 days. Like it is three to four, maybe 5% success rates at a lot of these treatment centers. And that's because you haven't actually changed your thinking or your feelings around alcohol. You've just tried to get more willpower. And willpower just does not sustain behavior change over the long term in most cases. Do you see that the liminal process can also be applied to other things outside of how we relate to alcohol and our relationship to it? Absolutely. And I think it's you can just take any example. If you have this very combative internal relationship in your mind with food, where you're beating yourself up, you both want that piece of cake and you hate yourself for that piece of cake, you have insane cognitive dissonance. If you think of cognitive dissonance, it's an internal argument. And if you imagine that you're walking down the street and you see somebody arguing, you have a body response. Most people would. And if you're arguing with somebody in your own household, it's it's painful. But with cognitive dissonance, we're arguing with ourselves in our own minds. And it's so painful, but it's become so normalized. It is how most people operate day in and day out that we just discount it. But it creates an enormous amount of pain. And whatever we're doing that we don't like ourselves for doing that behavior, whether it's drinking or eating too much or smoking or whatever it is, we're doing it in part to escape pain. It's a numbing, self-medicating agent. And so looking at that cognitive dissonance, recognizing that both of those voices inside your head both actually want the best for you. The voice that's blaming you and shaming you wants the best for you. The voice that's telling you it's okay this one time, it's okay, wants the best for you. And so it's like really looking at that, like I call it, who's in the arena? Like who are these titans battling in my own mind? And then going through and just really learning like, okay, is it going to work? I'm, I'm eating to make me feel better. Does it work? Has it worked in the past? You can't even ask those questions when you're full of judgment, right? When you're full of hatred of yourself because you don't have the space for the curiosity because we think if, we're, if I'm honest that it doesn't work, I'm going to have to stop. If I'm honest that drinking isn't good for me, I'm never going to get to drink again. I'm going to have to be sober. I'm going to have to go to meetings. We create all this story, all this heaviness around it. And so we don't allow ourselves the honesty to say like, okay, what are the beliefs that I'm holding that keep me doing this thing, that keep me desiring it? Why do I even want it? And so what I actually did is I wrote a list of all the beliefs I had around alcohol. And then I asked my friends, and then I went through one by one. And we live in this great day and age where you can find a scientific study online and you can look it up and say, is this true? Is this not true? And so that was really 
really the rewiring. And then it's just about experimenting. The normal way would be like, okay, I'm not drinking. I'm going to go to happy hour. I'm not drinking. It's really going to suck. Okay, I'm going to psych myself up for just sucking because I'm not drinking tonight. I have to be the sober driver. Remember that so well. Like I was a DD, so I'm not going to get to drink. So oh, I'm just going to have to get through the night. Guess what? If you tell yourself something's going to be terrible, it will be terrible. But if you go into it with like, okay, I don't know how it's going to be. It might be horrible. It might not be horrible, but I'm just going to experiment. I'm going to be the observer of my experience, see how it is. People surprise themselves all the time. And so those three steps, I think, can work for just about anything. Which I love that this is applicable to anything that we feel some sort of cognitive dissonance around that we want to make a shift with. And I love the example of we need to be looking at how we feel, and that's part of the liminal process, versus just changing our behavior. And it's, that's such a little thing that I think most people don't think about, but there, are, there is a separation, and that is part of what keeps us stuck in these cycles of going back to things, anything that we say we don't want to do any more of. Annie, I'm going to have you complete these three statements for me. Better humans are. Curious. Better work is. Fun. And a better world has joy. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I also just want to call out, this is the kind of work that I think we need, but also I'm sure there's so much resistance that you've experienced to this work. So also just for the fact that you are being courageous and sharing your journey and also trying to help all of us just change our relationship to this thing that is such a natural part of our lives. So I appreciate you asking us to question and to just look a little bit harder. So thank you for your curiosity and your radical acceptance. Well, thank you so much. It's such a joy to be here. That was Annie Grace, author of This Naked Mind, educator on changing your relationship to alcohol, or really anything plaguing you. One big thing before we go. So much of what we resist actually has a valuable lesson or really powerful transformation wrapped up in it. In this case, for Annie and probably for many of us, the resistance is to growth, which often means change, which often means we have to reflect and be really honest with ourselves and that we may even have to choose our own path when others aren't choosing it. In the case of alcohol, for me, it's fascinating and has been to read this book and put the whole picture together with facts and the liminal approach. Just sitting with the facts here, 87% of us in America partake in alcohol on a regular basis. Getting you and me to drink regularly, also known as alcohol advertising, is a multi-billion dollar industry. Alcohol has been a known carcinogen since 1988, my birth year, and it's addictive for everyone. Not just addictive personalities, not just current addicts, but for all of us. I will say, I haven't stopped drinking since reading this book, which is what I love so much about her approach. She's not trying to get all of us to be sober. She's trying to get all of us to see. And I will certainly say my desire to drink socially has decreased dramatically. And I feel really empowered about that. And then when it comes to your patterns, your beliefs, your habits, try her process in liminal thinking. See how changing your subconscious beliefs can change your behaviors and make you a better person. You might just find that your choice to explore a new way of being you gives other people more permission to do the same. If you like this conversation, share it with someone you care about and who would benefit from it. Give us a rating on Apple or Spotify to help other people find this work. And finally, we'd love to hear what you loved about this episode or our show. So take a minute to write a one-sentence review wherever you get your podcasts. 
Everyday Better is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow. Asaf Gijron is our sound engineer. He makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DiGiorgi mixed our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for challenging yourself to grow and become better every single day with me. The journey is worth it. And I'll see you next week.